welcome to another edition of the Nets Insider Podcast. My name is Randy Zellia from BackSportsPage.com. Here to console Rick Lachlan of the Nets Insider after a very traumatic experience, which was Saturday night's Game 7 against the Milwaukee Bucks. And joining us as well from BackSportsPage.com and Seth and Sean Sports, which can be heard on the BackSportsPage Podcast Network every Wednesday, the one and only Seth Kamins. Gentlemen, how are we today? Been better, Randy. Been better. Yes. <laughs> I recovered. I laughed. I cried. I laughed some more. And it was over. And we go on. Now we go on to what the heck do they do going forward? Yeah, I, I think that is going to be the question. But I think we have to uh, address the elephant in the room. And first off, congratulate the Milwaukee Bucks and their fan base. You know, in the conference finals. But I have to bring up the point. Milwaukee shouldn't be pounding their chest so hard as they beat Kevin Durant, a guy with one leg, the other superstar didn't play, and Blake Griffin, who hasn't played competitive basketball in two years, and a bunch of guys we never really heard of up until that point. So before we start jumping on the Milwaukee Bucks bandwagon, Rick, what happened here? How did this go wrong? You know, I just truly felt that you brought Steve Nash in this offseason, right? Hired him without any coaching experience. You tried to surround him with three proven assistant coaches, all of which look like they're going to get head coaching jobs. Udoka already going to the Celtics. It looks like D'Antoni now. Two rounds of interviews with the Trailblazers. Jacques Vaughn now linked to the New Orleans Pelicans opening. I felt like Steve Nash, in a lot of ways, he was supposed to be alongside D'Antoni, the architect of this seven seconds or less offense that was, you know, made famous in those mid 2000s Suns teams with him running point. And they got so isolation heavy. They basically put the ball in Kevin Durant's hands and said, make magic happen, which more times than not, he did. He carried them in game five and in game seven for stretches, but the Nets offense became predictable. They basically put the whole fate of the season in one player's hands and play, instead of playing team centric ball. And I felt that Nash almost wanted to go down with his big guns. He almost wanted to put the ball in Durant's hands, let Harden carry and shoulder minutes despite a grade two hamstring strain that we only found out about after the fact. And by shortening that bench rotation, by only allowing basically Jeff Green and Landry Shamit to play and sprinkle them in just to give uh, the Blake Griffins of the world uh, some rest and Joe Harris some relief after he couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. I felt like the reason the Nets had ascended to the number two overall seed, 48, 20, 48 and 24 overall record, was the quality of depth, was they were able to stay afloat with despite injuries to their big stars. And you understand in the big moments in the playoffs that not always the bench is going to carry you or be able to rise to the occasion. But I just felt personally, I'm curious what you guys think. I felt like Steve Nash basically didn't want to take any chances, wanted to ride or die with the big guns, and didn't give some of these X-factor guys off the bench a chance to give the team a boost. That was pretty good. I'm actually pretty um, I don't really disagree with you. Uh, I would have liked for them to, put, to bring Durant a little bit further down low. I think Durant, it'll have him play out of the post. He can pass out, try and get Harris some open shots because he said Harris was shooting 20% from the floor, which was unfathomable. But the reality is this. You have a three-pronged team where you had one healthy player who had not been healthy for two years before. He was. If this team is healthy, they win the title. They just do. Kyrie didn't play, or Kyrie played, you know, Harden was 20% for most of the series. And they took a team with good depth, with good, 
I don't want to say with great coaching because it wasn't great. I don't think Milwaukee was great with great coaching, no. but with a superstar and two very, very, very good players in Middleton and Holiday, you just took a team where you couldn't play one on five. And by by having Durant bring the ball up, literally just as you said, play ISO ball. Eventually, he's going to get tired. You have to. You have some young depth there. You don't know what you're going to get out of a Claxton. You don't know. You don't know, and I would have liked to have seen them do some more, bring some more people in, and see what could have happened. The reality was Harden shouldn't have been playing forty-five minutes a game. Harden probably shouldn't have been playing, and you know, it, it's almost amazing. It's funny. I've never seen a series where after the first two games, everyone thought the series was a, was over after that forty-five point demolition in game two. After game four, everyone thought the series was over in the opposite direction. Then Durant goes for 48, 39, and 27, and they win game five, and they think that's over. And it's like, it is a really interesting and fun series to watch, but the reality is you have three top ten players and only one played, and you went to a game seven overtime with one guy. I mean – the reality—that's how I see it—is if you were healthy, you would have won. They probably should have won anyway. If they had probably used Durant in a different capacity and used a little bit more of the depth, but they didn't. And there's no point in critiquing Nash because look, Nash, as you said, is a never coached who was surrounded by three co- by three head coaches or two head coaches in Doku who was going to be was inevitably going to be a head coach whether it was this year, or next year, so on and so forth. I know now he's going in with Boston. Um. If you want to blame, I don't blame Nash because I just don't. I blame you have you have bad you have injuries that didn't help, and I think between the four coaches combined, whether Nash is the head or not, they should have been able to come up with a better offensive game plan than Durant bring down the ball, Durant shoot the ball, Durant try and rebound the ball, and then Durant get back on defense, and it just doesn't work. So I see it differently. And I'll throw this out there, too, from the Milwaukee perspective. After watching Giannis for seven games, for a guy who's labeled a superstar in this league, Mm. he is definitely not a Batman. As Bill and I always like to say, he is definitely not Batman. Maybe a Robin, or he could just be Alfred. Um, In one of those situations, I'm watching him catch the ball, foul line extended, backing the ball to the three-point line, and charging in, going to the basket. Uh, this Seth, you and I have had conversations about the NBA for years, and one of the big things I was always very complimentary about was, was Amari Stoudemire. When, Stoudemire. when Stoudemire went down with his knee injuries, he was able, and, and he also took, it also took him to play with Shaq to start developing a game like an outside game, a mid-level, you know, mid-range game. Giannis is in desperate need of that, and he also has to learn how to shoot free throws and handle himself in hostile it's, environments. That was ridiculous. Yeah. Well, put it this way: the the free throws have only look good in comparison to Ben Simmons. Um, I'm not as concerned with him. Look, he is comfortable to a degree shooting the outside jumper. He, but it's not his job. You have Brian Forbes. You have Drew Holiday. When he comes back healthy, you have you know Middleton. I mean, is is very very good. You have Divincenzo who's going to come back. So you have people to shoot the outside. He's got to learn how to shoot a damn free throw. Yeah. And that's the rest of it. I'm not concerned. Look, if he, he shouldn't be shooting eight to 10 three pointers a game. He should be shooting two to three when there is nobody near him and he has the open shot. 
And yeah. the guy is so long and so damn big that he is impossible. Look, he he is a superstar, but he's not a top three to five guy. There, it depends what your tier is, and we've talked about this on our show all the time. You know, Durant is a superstar. James is a superstar. You want to? You can put in. You know, Curry's a superstar. You can put in different, but you can never be a super superstar. And this is why I've always, I've never been a Shaq guy. When you can't be comfortable having the ball in your hands in the last three minutes of a game seven, you can't. And he's going to be fouled, and he takes thirty six seconds to shoot a free throw. And which is kind of funny, actually, to watch. It was the it was the funniest thing about watching the Brooklyn uh, crowd deal with that. You know, that's what you're dealing with. But you're still dealing with someone you can build a championship caliber. And I think they're going to win the title. You can build, you can win a championship with him as your number one. But that doesn't mean he's a top two to three player in the league. But but here's why I point the finger at Steve Nash. And you mentioned it, Seth. I mean, those first two games, people were calling the series. I mean, the, you know, everyone forgets in game three. Durant hits that huge three to put them up, what, with a minute and change left. And it looks like this is going to be a clean sweep that basically they're going to flip the script. Milwaukee sweeps the heat and then they get swept. And we know what happened. And for me, it was the coaching adjustment. Look look at the Los Angeles Clippers. Ty Lue, NBA co- uh, championship winning coach with the Cleveland Cavaliers. The, the Clippers are the first team to go down 0-2 in three consecutive series now. Uh, look like they're char- charging back down 2-1. He's making the adjustments. From what I saw with Steve Nash, after those first two games, you saw Budenholzer, who's had his share of critics in the playoffs and his share of playoff demons that he's trying to exercise. But he basically was giving Giannis the ball in the middle of the court with the Nets playing that drop defense and letting him go one-on-one and not moving the ball, not finding open shooters. Chris Middleton looked lost. Drew Holiday looked like an afterthought on the offense. And I felt that Budenholzer made those offensive adjustments. He made some defensive adjustments. And the Nets just, as we just discussed, just went with that same uh, basically cookie-cutter game plan of giving the ball to Durant that maybe worked in in spurts or for certain games, especially with the home crowd in game five and seven. Uh, but that that's, to me, where I was most disappointed. Now, look, injuries, I agree with both of you, injuries derailed the season. There's no question that the Nets have a big, healthy big three or healthy big two. I would say that a healthy big one and a half. I mean, Harden was – 50 60 percent i mean he even revealed in those post-game comments that game five which i was at and i'm watching the warm-ups it's the first time he had any type of basketball activity even though they were saying well he's ramping up he wasn't ramping up he was just basically hoping and wishing and praying that that hamstring's not going to pull off the bone so in reality like i said the way the nets were playing offensively i would have never thought my wildest dreams i mean the nets set so many offensive benchmarks and were historically the most uh, efficient offense in NBA history, and they couldn't buy a basket for certain stretches against Milwaukee, and you want to give them credit defensively. I just felt the offensive creativity wasn't there. We mentioned the shooting struggles of Joe Harris, and even if they would have squeaked by this series against Milwaukee and you had Harden in the shape he was in, Durant with just logging minutes and you know with his tired legs, I'm not even convinced they would win that next series against the no, Hawks. Or I'm not the- either. You know what I mean? I mean, I just think the way the season was trending, how they were playing, it was too predictable offensively. It was too all or nothing with Durant. I didn't like it. So if you're a net fan, you would only hope maybe, and I'm not blaming the assistant coach, maybe some new perspective and new blood in that coaching staff, they can freshen things up, you know, for next season. And, and I also want to throw something else out there from the from a Milwaukee perspective and a Giannis perspective. And we were talking about uh, Seth, you were bringing up the fact that top-level stars, you know as much as I do, 
from a defensive perspective. And there's also another strategy thing that we talked about, uh, Rick, on our last show. Um, but Giannis rarely co- rarely covered Durant. But Durant and Harden were on Giannis well, for first major in, in key moments. Giannis, if I know again, I know it's it's a it's a coaching decision, but Giannis, if you're if you're the man on that team, you want to take on the best player. You know, the competitor in you means you want to go against the other team's best player, and we didn't see that. We didn't see Giannis going after Durant. We didn't see that. We saw PJ Tucker. On Durant and PJ Tucker was giving Durant fits, and you know he was making Durant work. I would rather see from a from a from a superstar perspective. I want to see Giannis dig down deep against Durant, but we, we didn't get to see that. No, but, why would if you have a guy like Tucker who is a strictly defensive, like he's a beast. I think the Nets. I'm you know it's someone the Nets may try and go after after this season. Mm-hmm. He. His job is to defend and annoy the best player on your on your team. Right. I get the idea you want superstar versus superstar, but if you have a defensive player who can look, no one can match up Durant. Durant's one of the worst matchups in the history of the NBA. Exactly. Inside outside. Yeah, he's impossible to guard. What you need Giannis for his offensive ability. As good a defensive player as he is, you need him for his offensive ability in this series. I don't blame Budenholzer for putting Tucker on him as much as possible, especially because it wasn't Durant for the most part wasn't going down, wasn't going low. He was staying outside. PJ Tucker's six six. That was a big six six. He can guard in the post, but not against a guy seven foot. But you can guard outside a guy that size. You don't want Giannis out there at seven foot guarding him. You're going to tire him out as well. I don't look. I I, I read all the Twitter crap about it. I disagreed. I would if I was Budenholzer. I would have probably stuck with Tucker as much as possible. If you want to put Giannis in certain circumstances, so be it. But I don't, I don't look the shot. Durant was incredibly good in those in, in five and seven. Look, he was incredibly good pretty much for the whole series. No one, if Giannis was going to, what was it? All you're going to do is tire out Giannis. And with a tired Giannis offensively, you're not winning those games. And I want to throw also one other thing out there from a Nets, from a defense perspective. I honestly, and Rick, we talked about this with Greg Logan when he was on as well. I'm trying to figure out why I, what, how DeAndre Jordan sort of fell out of favor with this. Because defensively, <laughs> he, he, he could have been, at least if anything, an extra six fouls in the no. – you know. <laughs> No. Who's down low for Milwaukee? Brooke Lopez? Brooke Lopez only shoots threes. We know this. We saw this for seven years in New Jersey. Giannis doesn't go down low. Who the hell is DeAndre Jordan going to guard? Well, I got to say this, though. I think Steve Nash, by deliberately giving the ball to Durant, not in the post, and bringing him outside and surrounding him with perimeter shooters, that Nash was trying to take the Bobby Porters and the Bobby Portises and the Brooke Lopez's out of Milwaukee's game plan. Because remember in those those games three and four in Milwaukee, how the Nets were getting roughed up. They were getting out physical. They were, you know, Kyrie was getting to the rim. He was getting undercut by Giannis and the ankle injury was a whole different story. I thought there should have been at least some kind of message from the league in the form of a, a fine. I'm not saying suspension, but it was a dangerous play. I don't care what you say with what Giannis did to Kyrie intentional or not. And those games, the physicality-wise, was getting out of hand. So I felt like Nash was trying to basically allow Durant to operate in space, have a more finesse game, open the driving lanes, open the shooting pockets, and they just weren't knocking down shots outside of Durant. So I 
I don't, I don't disagree for the strategy with Nash where I had the problem was when it clearly wasn't working, they had to have that second fiddle option or, or some kind of a wrinkle in the offense to, to maybe have some rim runs and put in a, a Nicholas Claxton or put in maybe a DeAndre Jordan as a spark. Look, I, I didn't love the DeAndre Jordan siding when he came over. It was basically, you know, he, he's buddy, buddy with the rant. You're going to, yeah. you're bringing me yeah. in the trade. You're bringing in DeAndre Jordan. You're yeah. bringing in my boy, you know? And it was like, I didn't love the I didn't love his game. I think he basically uh, kind of mailed it in that first half of the season, wasn't doing anything defensively, and the Nets made a change away from him in the starting lineup, and understandably so. So, again, in a series where Nash intentionally took a lot of the big guys out of the game and out of the paint, I don't know that DeAndre Jordan, beyond maybe a five- or ten-minute spurt where he could throw down some dunks and make some impact blocks, if he would have shifted the series in any way in favor of the Nets. No, I like the idea of Claxton more than more than Jordan. Because Claxton's at least going to bring bring. I mean, look, Jordan at one point was extraordinarily athletic. That's as you said, that's well past. Those, those days are behind. Those yeah. days are long gone. Um, but from at least an enthusiasm and athleticism standpoint, I, I think most of us like Claxton. Yeah. We're not and quite you sure a lot of that. But, and what about Blake Griffin? You got a lot of that. Talk about a guy yeah. that rediscovered that. I mean, where was well, where some rim runs for him? You know what I mean? Alley oops for him. They they didn't try anything of that sort. No, well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I'm assuming they're going to try and re-sign him come free because, I mean, they are going to have a very interesting offseason and along with yeah. a bunch of other teams. But the Nets is going to be fascinating. Well, and and now the word had just come out that Spencer Dinwiddie has de- uh, declined his player option for the team. Sure, why, why, would you, why wouldn't you? He's helping. Yeah. So no. the Nets could – look, he could end up a sign-and-trade, which wouldn't surprise me. Um, or he could end up – look, he wants 15 to $20 million. I don't know if you're getting that off of a torn ACL, but you're going to get in the. You're not going to be that far off, and you're not going to be. You're not going to be. You're not going to be in Brooklyn where you're. You're going to be the number four guy. I, I'm a. I'm a big Dinwiddie guy, um, and he can be a number two on a. I think he can be a two on a really good team, or a two slash three on a really good team. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see the LA teams make a run at him. But to see that news right after the Nets are eliminated in Game 7, Dinwiddie's been cleared for basketball activities. As a Net fan, you can't help but wonder, you know, if you're able to acclimate him. But, look, realistically, to get him into the rotation, into the swing of things, in the middle of a Game 7 or an Easter Conference Finals was unrealistic. But I I agree with Seth. I mean, I think the Nets are planning on moving on from Spencer Dinwiddie and knowing Sean Marks' track record – to be able to control in some way where Dinwiddie lands, maybe keeping him away from the Lakers or the Clippers, although that's kind of the I think preferred destination for him. He's going to go back to to L.A., his home uh, you know hometown where he grew up. Um, I, I think the Nets at least can get some value back in the form of a trade and some young assets that uh, they would not otherwise if Dinwiddie moves on. But I don't care, Joseph Ty, how, how well Alibaba and it, it, you know how uh, how much of a billionaire he is to pay that fifteen to twenty million per year and go deeper into the luxury tax situation. I just don't see it happening. That's the question is, do you, do you, I mean, look, the million dollar question, I guess, or merely the $160 million question is, do you, do you keep Kyrie Irving? I mean, that's the question because you're looking at three contracts in the next three years, that have, two years that have to be redone. You're not going to, you're not going to sign, you're, you're going to re-sign Durant if humanly possible, because he's Durant. You traded or swapped six picks plus Lever, plus Jared Allen for James Harden. You're not trading James James Harden after half a year. And Kyrie, after what, you know, he took time off, he did this, he did that. As great a scorer he is, he's not per se redundant because he's an amazing ball handler, amazing scorer. But I'm not sure you can pay him this. 
And there may be, you know, you can recoup some of the first round picks. You can recoup, you know, look, I really liked Karis Levert. Not that you're going to get Levert per se, but you can get some young talent that were price wise. I mean, that's really, that's really where the question comes in is do they keep Kyrie? Yeah. And I think you have to really look at the big picture of what are you losing if you get rid of them compared to what do you get when you keep them? If you keep them, you're, 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 you're playing this, this game. You know, like I hate to say it like that, Seth, you know, you and I've, you and I have been around enough to, to know it. We're, we're old, man. We're old. We're, we're old. We are, you know, like, I'm, I don't want to. I'm getting there. If not, I don't wanna, Rick, You're I don't probably wanna, half my age. Give me a break. No. It, Rick, I don't want to say that Seth is old, but his social security numbers in single digits. Um, look, at this at this point. Damn. <laughs> um, are you doing stand-up uh, later this month, later God, this week? Listen, I, I figured I'd take that one shot. Um, uh, so, look, at the end of the day, you know, you look at this Nets team, and yes, they mortgaged a lot to to get here. And I'm not even just talking about to get James Harden. I'm talking about from where they were when they when they traded Brooke Lopez and got Timothy Mozgov, and they had uh, D'Angelo Russell, who had ended up having a heck of a year with the Nets, and they found a way to get Kyrie to Durant to, to now now to Harden. And Seth, you and I have had so many conversations about this that they have a small window. They have the three the three years. Yeah. I mean, the way that I thought the deal worked, I'll, so I'll be quick, Rick. And then sure, no, no. Yeah, is I hated the deal originally, the Harden deal. I just thought it was too much. Um, I've kind of turned around a little bit on it. But you literally have – you have these guys for – but the deal works to me predicated on the re-signing of Harden and Durant. And you need to win a title. You need to make two finals in four years. That's my – and win one title. That's my – if he doesn't do that, then none, none of this else matters. And I'm going to ask you guys to take that logical part of your brain and throw it out for a minute because I, I do that all the time. I, I understand exactly what you're saying about Kyrie Irving. He is given as a net fan, as of somebody that's covering the team daily. He, he's a headache. He's a nightmare. He's a walking injury. The problem with even entertaining or fielding offers for him or making it public knowledge that you're basically looking to move him is that he was the impetus for Kevin Durant signing here. Kyrie Irving grew up a Nets fan. He grew up in West Orange, New Jersey, still has a house there, still has family there. He watched Jason Kidd, Randy was close to those teams, obviously working for the organization at the time, lead the Cinderella Nets teams to -to back-to-back NBA finals. Kyrie Irving made it part of his mission to join the Nets, now in Brooklyn, rebranded somewhat and relocated, to bring a title to the Nets organization and to Brooklyn. So by basically saying that he is not an untouchable player, you are – going down a dangerous path because I think it's a slippery slope. You have three unbelievably talented superstars. They're temperamental, they're very sensitive, and they're kind of quirky, and they stick together. So I think Sean Marks, and he's smart enough guy to understand this, when you look at the cap situation, like you mentioned, are you going to commit long-term due to the injuries and the headaches he's causing? If you want these three superstars to stay here, they're going to have to be all together. So I think it's all in or nothing and I don't think that Sean Marks can even have an inkling that he's going to trade Kyrie Irving because the first scent of sense of that, that could start to split the group apart and that could start to alienate Marks and that front office from those three guys because they are as close as any three superstars are across the league. That's my fear. I, I, I get it. My thought would be you couldn't – prior to the Harden trade, I completely agreed. I'm not sure with bringing in Harden because that – that still holds to the same degree that yes, they may be close, but the reality, 
the reality is they said, this isn't the New Jersey Nets. I'm a New Jersey Nets guy. I lived, I grew up 15 minutes from East Rutherford. I went to some of the playoff games with Kenny Anderson and Derek Coleman and Jazen. As I said, I am old. So this is a di- complete, to me, this is a completely different team. And at a certain point, you can't be $200 million into the luxury tax. There is a point of saturation where you can't go, you just can't do it. And now look, they have, they're going to always be able to get supplemental guys because they're always going to be, they're going to be as competitive as long as they're, you're going to get the Blake Griffins for a couple million. You're going to get guys, you know, I mean, DeAndre Jordan, if he was coming from someone else and signing for a minimum contract, that'll be there. But I don't know at a certain point, do they want to continuously, like, look, Golden State is $100 million into the luxury cap. Golden State has won three NBA championships. Joe J- uh, Jacob, or Lacob, I forget his last, I forget his name, is willing to pay that because they have a brand new arena. They have a huge, they also have their, you know, they're San Francisco. They have a massive, massive fan base. Brooklyn's is not a massive fan base. It's a split fan base based on between the Knicks and the Nets. And, I don't know. You know, look, we know how rich he is. I don't know how much he, if he wants to spend that kind of money. And I don't know if you want to spend $200 million. You know, maybe you give it one more year and see how it plays out. But you're you're committing literally a billion dollars, $700 million to a billion dollars to these three guys for four years going forward, who, as you said, are quirky, sensitive, and injury prone. That's asking quite a bit from ownership. Yeah, but this, but this is these are decisions and moves that Sean Marks made. Because yeah, but no one him for doing it. But this is how do you not take Kevin Durant? If if you have to take Kyrie to get Kevin Durant, how do you not take Kyrie? Like, but other than other than the luxury, but what have you seen, or should Sean Marks through his eyes see that these three players, when they're on the court, they're healthy? Those five, what they had six playoff games. Not let's not even count game one of the Eastern Conference semifinals because Harden goes down within a minute. So you have five full playoff games and you had nine regular season games where they looked virtually unstoppable. So as far as assuming these guys have their heads screwed on right and are on the court. There shouldn't be anything to stop this team aside from a clean bill of health. And like you mentioned, maybe in the buyout market or finding some better minimum guys to join this team and maybe keep some of the Blake Griffins of the world and the bench pieces together. As far as the basketball side of it, it's not like it's not working. It's not like there's not their, their chemistry issues. It's the health concerns and then the luxury tax, which are the, the two main issues that Sean Marks would have to work through. But if there's ever a time to sign them to extensions, it's going to be this summer. And they can't do it until August, I think, August 16th or thereabouts. But I, I fully expect all three of them to be extended. And then also with the health situation, you're also planning on starting the season on time this year. So you're having a shorter offseason again, which we all know the players. Plus, they're playing, plus we have two guys playing in the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. Well, and now Cardin. Cardin's Harden, out. So Frankly, thank thank goodness he withdrew. I, I talked to Randy about this. It was that was a head scratcher, but Harden will play whether he has one leg or no legs. So, yeah. guys, I gotta go. I gotta go. So, okay, no, no problem, Seth Camus. We appreciate it. Seth and Sean Sports, backsportspage.com every Wednesday. Have a good one, everyone. I, I, I guess I offended him with my signing uh, <laughs> talk. I don't think you offended him at all. But, Rick, you know, just something that we were, we were talking about. And, look, he's he's right about the Giannis thing, about not uh, not covering. And, uh, and look, 
about not covering Durant. And look, I, I, Nets fans, Nets fans are looking to point the finger. The simple fact of the matter is, there's no, there's no finger pointing in this situation. The, the situation, the real reality is, they were not healthy. That's the end of it. They were not healthy, and I think that's where everybody sort of has to understand. And, and you know, if they can come back healthy, ready to go, I think it totally changes the perception, and I think it totally changes everything about the situation. But now it's the offseason stings for if you're a Net fan. I think what still, Randy, bothers me in the back of my head is just like I started at the top of the show, they survived without these big three together before the Harden trade and even with Durant going through uh, contract tracing, in, injury protocol, Kyrie being out. They still, with their bench and quality depth, they were able to survive and sustain those uh, that tough injury and coronavirus-related missed games. But then when the playoffs rolled around, and look, I understand the NBA regular season is vastly different from the playoffs, but it was almost like the DNA and and Steve Nash almost didn't trust the DNA of the team that got them to that point, which is beyond those three superstar talents, was the, the camaraderie and the togetherness of that bench and the depth of it. And, and that's what concerns me moving forward is that is this going to be an all-in or nothing because – I don't want to be the one to say it, but I think it's a re- realistic scenario. One of these three guys, if not maybe two, are going to go down for certain stretches of the season. And is Steve Nash, whether it's in the playoffs or in the regular season, going to be shortening the rotation like he did in that series against the Bucks? Because that, to me, is the, the biggest concern moving forward, is Steve Nash basically being risk-adverse and saying, I, I'm giving the ball to Kevin Durant and letting him shoot 50 times in the game instead of giving a Landry Shamit or other guys an opportunity to step up. Because – Everybody forgets in game five, Durant had, what, 49 points. He missed the free throw. He's upset at the end. He didn't get 50. Jeff Green had 27 points. I mean, he was he was sticking threes from all over the place. It, had it not been for a X factor like Jeff Green to step up in that game, the Nets are probably going home in six, definitely going home in six. And they didn't give guys an opportunity like that in game seven. And that's kind of what sticks in my crawl uh, is, is, you know, Nash's decision to basically tighten up that rotation and not give the Jeff Greens of the world and other people an opportunity to, to make an impact. Yeah, and I think too. I think with the big, the big question now is going to be, who's back and who isn't. And you have to go down the roster and say who's really contributing. You know, who's really contrib- whose contributions are worth rewarding and bringing back. I think if, if you're a Net fan, you honestly feel that Blake Griffin should be back here. Um, if if he wants to be back, you know, we we've heard some rumblings that he definitely does want to be back in a Nets uniform, but time will tell when when that when we will hear whether he will be back or not. Uh, guys, don't forget to go to netsinsider.com for everything Brooklyn Nets oriented. And of course, follow us here on the Nets Insider podcast. Go on Twitter at Nets Insider One. We're on Facebook at the Nets Insider. I'm over at backsportspage.com. You can follow me at Randy BSB on Twitter, Instagram, and I'm on uh, Facebook too. Don't just don't be afraid to listen to the show. Give the fa- give the uh, Give the page a, a like or a review on Apple or Spotify. Show us some love. Let us know you love what you're, you you like what you're hearing. You love us. Uh, if you don't like me, you can tell me. If you don't like Rick, you can tell Rick. I prefer you tell Rick first, then tell me. Um, <laughs> and you know, you could just uh, we're we're gonna, we're gonna start ramping this show up during the summer, having former Nets, former. Um, people who are involved with the organization, they're going to be jumping on the show with us. We'll be doing more in depth and then during the season we'll be full throttle. So Rick, I'll leave you with any final thoughts. I I don't have much else. 
I, again, I just think at this point, if you're a net fan, you're the odds on favorite now to win the title. If healthy, Kevin Durant, I think the mantle has been passed officially from LeBron James to Kevin Durant as the best player in the league. And for me, it's a no brainer. Resigning these three superstars has to be Sean Marks' top priority. And like you said, I think Blake Griffin has to return. I think DeAndre Jordan is probably going to be back in some capacity, whether he's going to be utilized or not is a question. And then again, before the trade deadline or during the buyout market, they have to find out. And, you know, it didn't work out with LaMarcus Aldridge. You, you wonder what kind of impact he may have had on this type of series, although I don't I don't think it would have uh, moved the meter. We have to just hope and wish and pray that just like the Golden State teams of the past few years, uh, that the Nets pick up some valuable veterans uh, down that stretch, you know, following the trade deadline. Yeah, it's gonna be very interesting. And don't forget too, you know, we the Nets lost Marcus Aldridge, who retired suddenly. Not that he was a major part of the uh, game plan, but just admit, having that guy who's be able to hit low post jumpers. Just imagine having that in this series. You would have been able to have extra offense, extra defense on that side of it too. Hey, uh, Rick, I think we're done for now. I think we're I think we're back next week for another episode. And uh, maybe we might surprise everybody with another guest. If you guys can uh, give us a couple five-star reviews, we'll keep an eye on it, and we'll see if we can get somebody, uh, a former Nets alumni, on with us to uh, have some fun with us as well. And that's your cue. (laughs) Oh, sorry. So, yeah, again, um, just recapping the season, I felt like this was our first, uh, first year with Nets Insider, part of Back Sports page. I think we had a tremendous season. I know net fans talk you off the ledge. I had to let the dust settle. You got to let the emotions kind of go to the background after a devastating loss. But look, it wasn't unexpected. I was there in person at game five because I well knew, and so did Randy. They lost game five. The series, they were a a goner. Um, They pushed Milwaukee to the brink of a game seven, to the brink of elimination, just couldn't finish the job. And like I said, sometimes – Injuries, you can't control them. They're part of the game. It wasn't in the cards for the Nets, but they have to follow that heat blueprint from the LeBron James, uh, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh scenario where, you know, they went through some growing pains in year one. They lost in the finals in year one, and then they went to -to -to back-to-back-to-back, winning two out of those next three NBA finals. Um, That has to be the model and blueprint for success for this Nets team going forward. I agree 110%. Rick, Rick, I got nothing else. So for for me – Randy Zellia and Rick Lachlan, you've been listening to the Nets Insider. We appreciate it, guys, and we'll see you next time.